trying to put you back to the place where we all were when we were writing, waiting for the electrician, the album. Are you hypnotizing me? Yes. I'm, I'm, I, I know how you are with memory, so I'm trying to get you back. Oh. Bergman's house, right? Mm-hmm. Ah, he's asleep. No, Peter's asleep. If you remember, Peter used to, to sleep a lot during writing sessions sometimes. He just like a... Remember, he was out. He'd just be out. It was his lifestyle at that time. I was living in Bergman's house at that time. If it was the Bergman's house that you... We were all living in Bergman's house, except for, I think, Austin. Remember? And that loft, he had a sleeping loft that we all slept in when he wasn't sleeping. Do you remember that? Recall, re- recall a writing session. Um, okay. h- how did we do it? Well, uh, I would arrive late to the session and everybody would be angry at me. And I would say, there's three of you and there's only one of me. Why aren't you writing? See, why, why aren't you doing something? And then you'd all grumble and grouse and pour coffee. And then we'd sit down and we'd kind of catch up with where it was that we were going to be, where, you know, where we were with this project. Um, the Waiting for the Electrician project came out of a stage play that we had done uh, originally, which was based on, it was like an avant-garde play without words, remember? That was created by some fictitious Eastern European playwright, renegade theater group, kind of avant-garde theater group, uh, vaguely Polish, vaguely Yugoslavian, vaguely who knows what. And I can't remember his name, Vasily Vagli, perhaps, I don't know. But I, I know that we uh, pawned ourselves off, Bergman pawned us off, you and Phil and myself, as three members of this uh, avant-garde theater group from that had escaped, as it were, from Eastern Europe and was performing its play, Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him, uh, which was done without words so that it could be universally understood. But, of course, it was extremely difficult to understand because none of us doing it knew what the hell we were talking about, uh, miming about. But I remember that we performed in, in black turtlenecks and black clothing, right? You know, uh, very, very... Uh, uh, hippie, bongoy, we performed this this sham of a play in front of a of a captive audience of students who were, I think, attracted by Peter Bergman's Radio Free Oz personality because uh, he was constantly putting everybody on anyway. And that we performed this play, and then that I spoke to the students. We, I think, perhaps, we all did in some pseudo accent, Russian or something, you know, Eastern European, vaguely about this oppression, oppression, getting free from power, finding power, blah blah blah. And of course, what amu- has always amused me later is that that indeed, waiting for the electrician became, in a, a strange sense, true because Lekwalesa, who was an electrician, became the leader of his Eastern European country. Very bizarre, but we had nothing to do with that, of course. All right, so I had gone. Uh, away and left this this nascent Firesign Theater thing behind me to pursue some kind of fortune in New York, some acting thing I had to do. I still was living down in the village. And I remember I gave up my, I think part of the reason I went back was to give up my apartment, which I did, gave it to a, another actor. And I moved in with uh, a girl named Diana Dew, uh, who had invented electric clothing. And I'd met her out here with my friend Brandon DeWilda at the time, uh, my late friend Brandon DeWilda. Well, I was living together with her and this other girl. It was those kinds of days in the in the village, and our relationship finally ended. It was like both of them wanted to kick me out. It was over, and the moment that it was over, that Diana Dew basically said, "You've got to get out now." 
and I had nowhere to go, the phone rang, and it was for me, and it was Peter Bergman, and he was calling from Columbia Records, and he said, there is a ticket, an airplane ticket for you, at the Columbia Records building in New York City. Go and get it tomorrow and fly back because we're writing a record called Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him. And that's all we've got, just the title. Now, I knew, I was smart enough to know at the time, that we couldn't just transfer the pantomime that we've been doing onto a record. Although that would have been a good avant-garde idea. You know, we could have put... uh, famous monologues of Marcel Marceau on the other side, and it could have been a big seller. In those days. But uh, I, I knew that we were going to be forced to actually write something. So I flew back. I said goodbye to Diana, and, and I, I, I left my Argentinian blanket and my guitar at her house, which I'm forever sorry about. She later changed her name to Daisy Duck and married, by complete chance, a childhood friend of mine from my hometown in Goshen, Indiana, named Ricky Curtis. And they got married and moved to Florida. And then they're divorced now, too. Uh, And I had nothing to do with that. So I came back. And, of course, I had no place to live. So I was staying at Peter Bergman's. And uh, we started writing. As far as I remember, David, there wasn't a great big discussion of what form this was going to take. We sat down and decided what we were going to write about. I remember the first thing we decided to write about was the American Indians. Because on the Radio Free Oz show which had started almost a year before we wrote this album, uh, the Hopis and their various representatives ended up on the show, and all of us got very involved in traditional Indian land and life issues and the Hopis and the Hopis' prophecies. Uh, We were close to a strange half-Indian named Craig Carpenter who came to us as this kind of mystical... uh, spokesman for the Hopis, got us out to Hopi land, and we're very much involved with the American Indians. I think we're way ahead of our time on that. The Fireside Theater, if, if you can point anything at the Fireside Theater, presaged more than anything else, it was interest in Native American affairs. And we didn't call them Native Americans then, we called them Indians. Nobody was calling anybody Native Americans, you know, you'd say you know, Indians. And we started, in fact, we actually wrote that album as best as I can remember in in the order in which it appears on the album. We wrote Temporarily Humboldt County first. I may be wrong, but I think that's what we did. We, we just did it. We wrote our three short pieces first before we attacked Waiting for the Electrician or someone like him. And the title for Temporarily Humboldt County came out of Craig, our contact with Craig Carpenter, because Craig Carpenter had been with the Indians up in Humboldt County, California, and there, in, or, in order to refuse the white man's appellation for the area, they called it Temporarily Humboldt County. And uh, we took that directly from him. We did a lot of taking. Uh, Fire Sign was real cultural Velcro. Anything that was interesting stuck to us, and we found a way of using it. It's one of the great powers of Fire Sign work is the amount of detrius, cultural detrius, that we picked up and, and incorporated. And, and because I think our culture is so thick with all of these little phrases and all of these little scraps that people were really turned on by material that used them in, in a similar way. It kind of reminded them of their own me- suppressed mental processes. I've always felt the Firesign Theater, one of the strong things about the Firesign Theater is that it reminds people or it operates in the way that people subconscious does. And that's what's so delightful. It's like what's behind your everyday mind is what the Firesign Theater brought you. It isn't really a matter of being surreal. It's a matter of being subconscious in, in that sense. So we did the, the Indian piece. And we did the Indian piece as a very uh, standard skit. Um, 
with a trick. It was one of those reveal skits. So in a sense, I think also the fire sign was very involved with the idea of movies. I know that uh, you, David, were very much a fan of movies. I'd grown up on movies. All of us liked movies. So the idea of doing a scene and then pulling back to reveal, which is not a stage technique. It's basically a movie technique, is what we did with Temporarily Humboldt County. We had a bunch of Indians uh, uh, talking at the top. And then we kind of reviewed the history of, of the American Indian, the discovery of America, the use of, in, the use of Indians by the Americans up to the present. And all of a sudden you discover that these Indians are part of a film that's being shot. So, you know, the, the, the ultimate modern use of the Indians. So in that sense, we did a reveal skit. Uh, the influences for that piece were absolutely various. I mean, uh, Phil Austin was a student of Indians. He really read a lot about Indians. So he knew a lot about about them. Uh, I was uh, more enthusiastic about the the the, the drama of Indians. I.e., I had I had gone up to the state of Washington to uh, 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 report for KPFK the the winter before on the uh, persecution of the Indians in Klamath, in the Klamath Falls. Uh, don't remember the name of the Indians themselves. Dick Gregory had gone up there also, and Marlon Brando, and I went up and dealt with that. And I was very much taken with the drama of the Indians. I was not a scholar of Indian lore. You also were very much into Indian lore. Uh, the What was that book, The Man with Many Masks? I can't remember. I'm a little vague on this. But you had a real sense of Indian um, anthropology and history. Austin was also more a student. Proctor was like... He was like a leprechaun. Indians, you know, he, he dealt with it on, his, on this marvelous kind of superficial level. It's part of his great comedy is that a lot of the characters he plays, the senator who doesn't understand them, you know, the, the people that don't understand him, the, the, the obtuse American, is in some way the real Phil Proctor. It's, a, it's not the full Phil Proctor, but it really is like, you know... Um, you know, uh, we went. Uh, we're going to send an Indian to, ex- to exchange school. We're going to exchange him for somebody else. It's really his. his uh, that's how he operates, and that's what I think kept us very American and very sane. Without Phil Proctor, I think the three of us would have been much too serious and much too historical and taken the whole thing much too much as a cause. To Phil, it was not a cause. Phil is a leprechaun, and leprechauns only enjoy the the irony of situations. 